hope to finish the book of Isaiah, to finish chapter 66 and the book itself. And what we've seen, what we saw last time, is God's provision for the millennial Israel in chapter 66, the final chapter of the book of Isaiah. He will birth millennial Israel, and he'll do it very quickly. We're talking about at the end of the seven-year tribulation and the beginning of the thousand-year reign where Christ returns, God in the flesh, and he will comfort Israel, the millennial Israel, as a mother comforts her young infant, her young baby. He will bring joy and gladness to Israel and to the friends of Israel. You see the friends of Israel in verse 10 with the phrase, those who love Jerusalem. In verse 14, last time we saw the blessings that God gives his servants. Their hearts will be glad and their bones will flourish. This is the description of maximum wellness, if you want to use that term. Maximum wellness in the kingdom. Maximum mental health, maximum physical health. And what we see this morning is before these great blessings will come, God will judge his enemies. At the very end of verse 14, we begin this description of judgment, and it's really an extended description of judgment. Let's start with the very last phrase in verse 14 of chapter 66, the very last sentence. It reads like this, but he will be indignant toward his enemies, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. These few verses describe the terrifying wrath of God against his enemies. And we find six concepts of divine judgment in these few verses. We see God's indignation, to use the phrases that the prophet uses, God's indignation, God's anger, God's fury, God's rebuke with fire, God's judgment with fire, and God slaying the many. All of this is describing God's wrath. The phrase God's wrath, or the wrath of God, is used over 600 times in the Scripture. Let me say that again. It's used over 600 times in the Scripture when you take the Old Testament references and the New Testament references. But sadly, many churches today, many pastors today, shy away from this concept, this reality that is in the Scripture. It's a warning. The reason God uses, has his human authors memorialize the phrase, the wrath of God or God's wrath many, many, many times, over 600 times in the scripture is because God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. And in his great mercy, he warns. He warns of the vengeance that is to come. The reason many churches, many pastors don't speak of this is because it's too hellfiery. It's too brimstony. And we don't talk about that at our church, is kind of the mindset. And so people don't want to hear it. So the pastor remains quiet about the warnings from God. Look, if I'm totally honest with you, I have to admit, it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. 
to teach. It's not enjoyable to teach, to preach about hell, about judgment, about God's vengeance. It's much more enjoyable to preach about love and God's mercy and God's compassion and heaven and blessings. Most pastors downplay these divine truths, but it was not always so in our land. It was not always so in America. Pastors used to love the people enough to warn them of God's coming wrath. Let me quote a sermon from an American pastor from three centuries ago. Sadly, I have to go that far back. From three centuries ago, and really, I shouldn't say he's an American pastor. He was really a colonial pastor. He was a man who was educated at Yale. You remember the the original universities of America were seminaries, Harvard, Yale, William and Mary. So this was a man who was educated at Yale and was a pastor at a church in Massachusetts. The man's name is Jonathan Edwards. And in this quote, Edwards warns those without Christ about the reality of God's wrath and about the lake of fire. He uses serious words, vivid words to warn people that he loves, to warn a congregation that he loves. It's an extended quote, so please stick with me. He says this, The wrath of God burns against them. The them here is the unconverted. The wrath of God burns against the unconverted. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed. Tis the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to. We often read of the fury of God, Edward says. So Isaiah 66, 15, he quotes our passage. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. The words are exceedingly terrible, Edward says. The fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful that must be. Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? Oh, then... What will be the consequence? What will become of the poor worm that shall suffer it? To what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must the poor creature be sunk who shall be subject of this? Consider this, you that are here present, that yet remain in an unregenerate state. That God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God sees your torment to be so vastly disproportionate to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion on you. He will not forbear the executions of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy. He will have no regard to your welfare nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much in any other sense than only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld 
because it is so hard for you to bear. And then he quotes Ezekiel 8.18. Therefore I will also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear. Then Edwards resumes, and he says, Now God stands ready to pity you. This is the day of mercy. But when once the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and dolorous cries, dolorous is the idea of sorrowful. When the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and sorrowful cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall, not, you shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction, and there will be no other use of this vessel but to be filled full of wrath. How awful are those words, which are the words of the great God. And he quotes Isaiah 63, verse 3. I will tread them in mine anger and will trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and will stain all my raiment. Raiment is a reference to clothing. Then Edwards points the congregation to Christ. This is the congregation of the church that he is preaching to. He's not just preaching on a street somewhere. He's preaching within a church building. And let everyone that is yet out of Christ, Edward says, and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance to others. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste, and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape the mountain, lest you be consumed. He finished his sermon with a quote from Genesis 19, where the angel said to Lot and his family, Get out. Go. Leave Sodom now. Don't look back. That's how he finished this sermon. The name of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he's right. He's right. Is God loving? No question. Is he merciful, full of grace and mercy? No doubt. But the sinner is in the hands of an angry God. Anger, angry. God being angry is one of the words that the prophet uses here in our passage. I cite this long quote from this sermon of a pastor of a bygone generation because I think he is accurate. He is correct in the way he describes the horror of God's wrath, and we do people a great disservice when we minimize the vengeance and the wrath of God, when we downplay it. Edwards was correct in the way he described this. In Isaiah chapter 66, verses the last sentence of verse 14 through verse 16, the prophet is issuing a warning, a warning to humanity to submit. It's a warning to Gentiles and it's a warning to Jews to submit because the day of the Lord is coming, fierce, full of fury, full of wrath. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. Verse 15 says that it will come with the whirlwind, meaning quickly, 
with great force. Verse 16 says that the Lord's sword will come upon all flesh. This means his enemies. That's the, the phrase that is used from verse 14, his enemies. Please understand that the vast majority of humanity are the enemies of God. We're all born the enemies of God, but the vast majority of humanity live and exist and remain and even die still in that enemy status. And that's what's being described here when the word all is used. It doesn't mean literally all. It's a figurative all. It's a word, it's a hyperbolic word, a word that is an exaggeration, that is understood as, as an exaggeration to describe the vastness of humanity. The overwhelming majority of humanity are the enemies of God and they die and they continue for eternity as the enemies of God. Jesus himself said this in Matthew, in effect said this in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where he said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many, there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. This is the sad reality of human nature, but it is a reality that the Scriptures make clear. Keep reading in verse 17 of chapter 66. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eats swine flesh, detestable things, and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. This is the activity of the false worshipers, the false worshipers that are described in verse 3. The Mosaic law prohibited the Israelites from eating ceremonially unclean things like pigs and mice. And once Israel rejected her God, then she opened up a vacuum, a vacuum of unbelief. It happened in ancient Israel. It happens today. When ancient Israel that Isaiah is, is addressing here. When they rejected God, they opened up this hole, this vacuum that sucks in, that draws in wickedness. And so the things that they thought were detestable, the things that they thought were disgusting, became appealing. They became attractive. Does that not sound familiar? I mean, the things that our grandparents and our great-grandparents thought were repugnant are things that our culture doesn't tolerate. We embrace it. We celebrate these things. That's what happens with the vacuum of the soul, with the vacuum of unbelief. When you reject God's truth, you open up a hole that sucks in the ways of the world. But since the kingdom is the focus here in chapter 66, this verse is not only describing Isaiah's era, but it's also describing the end times during the seven-year tribulation, there will be great rejection of God and there will be great vacuum, a great vacuum of unbelief in the soul. And so the Antichrist will look very attractive. People will be drawn, especially Jews, unbelieving Jews, to the Antichrist. They will worship the one who is totally opposed to their Messiah and this will bring great judgment from God. Keep reading in verse 18. God says, for I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues 
and they shall come and see my glory. This is referring to the judgment that will come at the end of the tribulation. When Christ returns, all nations, all peoples will behold him. And they will behold his glory. And this will begin when Christ enters the atmosphere at his return. Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun, this is Jesus speaking, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. We're not told what the sign of the Son of Man is. They will know it at that time. They will know it when they see it, but we don't know what it is. Actually, we don't need to spend a whole bunch of brain damage trying to figure out what it is because we're not going to be here because this is in the time of the tribulation. So, the, so Jesus refers to the Son of Man, excuse me, the, 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 the sign that will appear from the Son of Man appearing in the sky. And then you keep reading, and then all the tribes of, earth, of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great joy. The world mocks this notion. The world mocks the notion of the return of Christ, the second coming. You, know, you even see someone say, the second coming. I mean, they, they kind of say it with derision. They won't forever. It is a certainty that, when, that, number one, that Christ will return. And when he returns, he will return with great glory and majesty and awe, and the world will marvel And so what's happening in our verse, in verse 18, is this reference to the glory, that they will see the glory. That glory will happen because the context here is the end times. The glory will begin at Christ's return when he cracks open the sky and displays his glory. And then that glory will continue when Christ judges and he brings all the nations into the place of judgment, the sheep and the goat judgment that we saw in Matthew 25 last time. This is the act of judgment that displays the glory of God because when God judges, it displays who he is. It displays his majesty and his glory. Keep reading in verse 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Shutubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have never heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Again, we're not told what the sign is. It may be the same, same sign as the Son of Man referenced in Matthew 24, verse 30, but we don't know exactly what it is. The survivors will know the sign. The survivors who are mentioned here in verse 19, they'll know the sign. These are the Jews that survived the tribulation and that trusted in Jesus, that entered into the millennium. Some people believe this is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists from Revelation 7. I don't think it's those. In Revelation 7, God sends forth 144,000 Jewish evangelists evangelists, and they are incredible evangelists. They'll make Billy Graham seem like nothing. Incredible evangelists that will bring many to Christ, including many Jews to Christ. I don't think that's what's in reference here because the context in this verse is the millennium. What we're seeing is that during the millennium, Christ will send out Jewish evangelists, Jewish evangelists that survive the tribulation 
There were believers in the tribulation that entered the millennium, and then Christ will send them out as missionaries. Remember, in the millennium, the human body will be different. It's still going to be flesh and bones, but health is going to be wonderful, and there will be long lifespans. So I believe these are people, Jews, who were alive during the tribulation, who started the tribulation as unbelievers, then they trusted in Christ at some point in the tribulation. They survive the tribulation. They enter into the thousand-year reign with Christ. They receive, like everyone in the, in the millennium, incredible health, long lifespans, and Christ sends them out from Israel to the world as Jewish evangelists. They will be missionaries to the uttermost parts of the world because they will be used by God to fulfill the prophecy that is given many times in the scripture that the entire earth will be filled with the glory of God. They will declare God's glory among the nations is what the verse says. That's what it says in verse 19. And this is fulfillment of the ancient prophecy back from Numbers 14, 21 where Yahweh says, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Or in Psalm 72, verse 19, and blessed be Yahweh's glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea, meaning just complete depth. Right? The waters cover the sea. We're not talking about an inch thick and a mile wide. We're talking about depth of the knowledge of the glory of God that is spread around the planet. And I believe these individuals, these Jewish individuals here in verse 19 are part of the agents, the servants, the missionaries of God that he will send out. Can you imagine their testimonies? I mean, they're going to give their testimony of what they saw in the tribulation, how at one time they were lost and dead. They entered the tribulation as unbelievers, and then they saw all of these supernatural things. You see, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. The Scripture describes warfare. Sadly, we as Christians just, la, 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 la. We just kind of flip along clueless to the warfare that we're engaged in, but the Scripture's clear that we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and the spiritual warfare right now is hidden. It's hidden, right? The greatest trick the devil ever played was persuading the world that he doesn't exist, to quote, to paraphrase an old theologian. But in the tribulation, the spiritual war will be on display, and angels and demons and supernatural freaky things will be seen by the entire planet. Most of the planet will be killed during that time period when the spiritual warfare is in full display, when Satan is desperate because he will be cast, his access, access to heaven will be removed, and he knows his end is soon. Most of the planet will be lost, killed. But these missionaries that Christ will send out during the millennium will have been there. They will have entered the tribulation as unbelievers. They will have believed, maybe from the 144,000 Jewish evangelists or from whatever, whomever. They will have seen the works 
of the devil, the works of God. They will have seen Christ return. They will have seen Christ slaughter the armies at, the, at, the, at, the, at Armageddon in Revelation 19. They will have seen all of these spectacular things. They will have seen Christ birth the nation supernaturally like that. They will have seen Christ reestablish the nation of Israel and reconstitute the planet. And their testimony will be incredible. These are the ones that will go forth to the nations to use the language of our verse and communicate the glory of God. Their testimonies will not be about them. Right? Most, well, most. Many Christians say, when they give their testimony, they say they've used these words that are really trying to draw attention to themselves. You know what I mean when, 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 you, when you hear believers and they, they want to talk about how they were saved. And, and, and it's great to talk about how you're saved. I'm, I'm not dissing that at all. It's great to talk about what God has done for you. You should. You should praise Him. But when you give your testimony, it's all about God. It's not about you. These evangelists will be all about God because they will, will have seen His great and majestic works during the terrible time of wrath of the tribulation. Keep reading. In verse 20, then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Last time we saw the regathering of Israel, one of the most frequently promised prophecies in all of Scripture. Last time we saw the regathering of Israel, which will occur at the beginning of the millennium with the birth of the millennial Israel. But verse 20 is not talking about that. Verse 20 is talking about what happens in and during the millennial, the millennium, when Gentiles will come to worship at Jerusalem. Gentiles will flock to Jerusalem there to worship Jesus. Jesus, the King of kings, God in the flesh. And when they come, they will look for a Jew to come with them. When the Gentiles come to worship Jesus in Jerusalem in the millennium, they will look for Jews who are outside of Israel to join them. If I could use street lingo, they'll want a Jew because they'll want to give a Jew a ride. They'll want to give them a ride, so to speak. And they'll do it in first-class ways. Everybody's going to want to be with a Jew in the millennium. They're going to want to be with Jews, especially in the land of Israel, to be in their presence, to worship with them, and to have access to their king. I'm not making this up. This is in the Scripture. I mean, the prophet Zechariah put it this way in Zechariah 8.22, So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. This is the Jewish God. This is Yahweh, the Jewish God whom, say, who, whom we submit to, who saves Jews and Gentiles. But make no mistake, He is a God who first revealed Himself to Israel. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. Where? Not to New York City. 
not to, to Beijing. The context here is to Jerusalem. Let us go with you to Jerusalem, for we have heard that God is with you. This is what is being described in verse 20, where Gentiles will go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, and they'll want a Jew to accompany with them, to accompany them, to go with them on this journey to see the king. Then look at verse 21. I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Who's the them? Is it Jews? The them's not Jews. The them is Gentiles. This is a fascinating verse. It's saying in the millennium, God will take some Gentiles and make them Levitical priests. And take other Gentiles and make them Aaronic priests. Now, of course, Jews will be Levitical priests and Aaronic, and, and Aaronic priests, but God is saying he will take some of the Gentiles and also use them in the priesthood to serve as Aaronic and Levitical priests. These are not resurrected church-age believers in their resurrected bodies. Right? We're called royal priests. We're designated as royal priests, and that's not the context here. These are people who are not in resurrection bodies. These are people who... Are, have never died, not resurrected, but these are millennial Gentile saints who live and are alive during the millennium who will serve in the temple alongside of Jews. This is very different than the Mosaic Law, right? I mean, in the Mosaic Law, Gentiles were prohibited. Remember, there was the death penalty if the Gentile went past the court of the Gentiles in the courts of the temple Right, you have the exterior part of the temple. You have the Holy of, of Holies, the most interior part of the temple. And then as it goes out, you have different courts. And the court of the Gentiles was out there. Gentiles could be there, but if they stepped past it, it was a death penalty. And they'd have a big, they had a big sign that said, you leave at, your risk, at the risk of, of death, a Gentile. You go past this area. Very different in the millennial reign. There will be a temple, Ezekiel tells us, in the millennium. And we know from the Mosaic Law, well, we know from, the, from, from Christ and from the New Testament that Christ fulfilled the Mosaic Law. He superseded the Mosaic Law. And the millennium will be an entirely new order. There will be some similarities in the sense that there will be a temple There'll be an Aaronic priesthood and, and a Levitical priesthood, but it will be an entirely new order. And as part of that new order, Jews and Gentiles will serve as priests. This is the fulfillment of the covenant, which we will study next Sunday. This is, this is part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In you, Genesis 12, 3, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's part of the blessing to all the families of the earth. Keep reading in verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, for just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Here God says, just as the new heavens and the new earth I will create and they will be eternal, so will be the name of Israel. So will be the Jewish 
people. They will live forever. Many people have puzzled, have been puzzled and wondered about the longevity of the Jew, including Mark Twain. We saw a quote from Mark Twain when we first began this study. Mark Twain was puzzled by this idea of why have all these other peoples come and gone and yet the Jew is still around. He was puzzled by the longevity of the Jew and so I'm going to read a quote from one of his articles in Harper's Magazine in 1898. He said this, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he has always been, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Mark Twain asks. Now, sadly for Twain, he was not a believer, and so he never found the answer to his question. Maybe he knows it now. But the answer to his question is found in God's Word, exclusively in God's Word. It is the sovereign will of God that is the secret to the longevity of the Jew, not, in just, not just in this world, but in the world to come. And again, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant that we will see. And then we get to verse 23. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all, man, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. History is consistently, methodically marching to an inescapable end. It is an end that the world resists, keep kicking and screaming. It is an end that the world hates and scorns. It is an end that the world mocks. The end is submission to God. It is a certainty. It is unavoidable. And it is the destiny of eternity. That's why the language here in verse 20 says, Verse 23 says, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, it's a way of saying from forever to forever. Actually, this is not an end at all. It's the beginning because eternity begins with this, begins with abject, complete, absolute submission to God, and that will be the status quo forever and ever. God spoke of this end which is really just the beginning. He spoke of this earlier in the book. Isaiah 45, verse 22, reads like this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Whenever you see that, before we get to the quote, whenever you see that language that says, I've sworn by my name, I've sworn by myself. What God is saying, and, and, and it's a common way for God to swear. Don't think of a cuss word. Think that he is making an oath. And when it says, I swear by my name, I swear by God, I swear by my word, it's a way of saying, I am not God if that which I'm about to speak does not happen. In other words, it's utterly unthinkable 
if that which I'm about to speak fails to occur. It's no stronger. It's a way of giving an oath that is the absolute strongest way to give it. There's no stronger way to give an oath. And so God stakes his prophecy on his very name, the name of God, the most important word, the most important concept in all of Scripture. The prophecy that he gave back in Isaiah 45, verse 23, is that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. That is what history is marching unescapably towards. And then we finally get to the last verse in the book of Isaiah, to verse 24. This is a very difficult verse, not because this, the, the Hebrew syntax or the Hebrew grammar or the, some unique Hebrew words are in play, but it's a very difficult verse because it teaches something that is horrible, something that is terrifying, the horrible judgment of God. Look at verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an, ab an abhorrence to all mankind. Jesus cites this verse in Mark 9. In Mark 9, verse 47, we read this. These are Jesus' words. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Then Jesus quotes this last verse of the book of Isaiah. To be cast into hell where, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Of course, Jesus is not promoting self-mutilation. He's using a... a hyperbolic statement. This is a figure of speech. It's hyperbole where he's exaggerating. Everybody knows he's exaggerating. He's exaggerating to make a point. He's saying if you lust after something that blinds you to your need to salvation, then get rid of that lustful thing and use extreme measures to run from that lustful thing, that lustful thing that your eye craves. Run from it because Otherwise, if it blinds you of the need to be saved, then you will go to Gehenna. That's the Hebrew word there for hell. Gehenna. And Gehenna, we pronounce it as Gehenna. Gehenna is a transliteration of the Hebrew term Gehenom. Gehenom. Gehenna was a valley. It was a valley just south of Jerusalem where the Israelites would engage in pagan idolatrous practices, where the Israelites would sacrifice their babies to the god of Moloch. They would engage in human sacrifice and these idolatrous practices. And so then the godly king Josiah said no more, and he defiled the valley of Hemon. He defiled Gehenna. He turned it into a garbage dump where they would burn refuse and where they would burn corpses. And so by Jesus' day, Gehenna came to be thought of as the place of judgment, as the place of eternal judgment. And so Gehenna is another way of saying eternal hell. Gehenna was the place where corpses were burned and where worms would eat the refuse. Because of Gehenna's disgusting nature and constant fires, 
It came to be associated with the place of eternal judgment. And what we're seeing is by Jesus quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, as a reference to the eternal place of hell, to the eternal place of judgment, we're forced into an unescapable truth, a truth that honestly, as I studied this passage, I wanted another way. I wanted to find something else, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked. But there is a horrible truth that is baked into this passage. I mean, the fact that unbelievers will be cast in the lake of fire is bad enough, but there's something worse than that that's embedded in this passage. When Jesus cites verse 24 in the New Testament to describe, when he, when he refers to verse 24 as a reference to the eternal place of hell, it means we can't read verse 24 as simply talking about the millennium where the worshipers will go out and look at the corpses. It means there's an eternal context here. It means there's an eternal reference to hell. Verse 24 says that they will go forth and look. These are intentional actions by the worshipers who in the millennium will go to Jerusalem to fellowship with the King of Kings, to worship the King of Kings, and there will be apparently a cemetery next to Jerusalem. A cemetery that has the wicked, the bodies of the wicked that haven't been resurrected yet. Remember, everybody's going to live forever. Believers will be resurrected. Unbelievers will be resurrected. Believers will be resurrected to God's eternal kingdom the place that is described as an unspeakable joy. Unbelievers will be resurrected, end of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, to the place of eternal torments. Apparently, this is saying that in the millennium there will be a cemetery outside of Jerusalem so that the worshipers who go to fellowship with the King of Kings and worship Him will go forth and intentionally, because it says they will go forth and look. They will purposefully go to the cemetery to see those who are the rebels, those who were under the judgment of God, but there's more. This is the part that I, that I wanted to find another way, another reading, but there's no other reading. It doesn't just refer to the millennium. It refers to eternity. Because the language says their worm won't die. The language of the verse says the fire, won't be, their, the fire won't be quenched. Jesus cites this verse in describing e the eternal hell. What am I saying? I'm saying that we will see them in the lake of fire. I'm saying that you will see your friends and your family members who have rebelled against Christ, who have not submitted to Christ, you will see them in eternal suffering. This verse doesn't just refer to the millennium. It refers to eternity. And so, many people will say, no, 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 that can't be. That just can't be. Because the kingdom of God is described as the place of unspeakable joy. The kingdom of God is a place of perfect happiness of no tears, 
and they're right. I mean, Revelation 21 makes clear that eternity, that the eternal kingdom of God is the place of no more tears, no more pain, no more death. The old things have passed away. But also, what's in the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, is righteousness and justice. And our sense of righteousness and our sense of sin will be that of God's in eternity. Today, we think of sin dimly. Today, we think of God and righteousness and justice and the attributes of God in a dim way. But once we are transformed and we enter into eternal fellowship with God, we will see clearly. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. You know, their mirrors back then were not like our mirrors where you can see all the details. You know, eh, eh, eh. Our mirrors are not, were not their mirrors. Their mirrors were kind of hazy and dim. And so Paul said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Today our sense of sin is dim. We're desensitized to sin. We rationalize sin. We minimize sin. But in the kingdom we will see Sin for what it has always been, the greatest offense to the holy, righteous God. In the kingdom, our joy will be God's joy. God is not going to lose one second, one ounce of joy when he casts the rebels into the lake of fire. He's not going to lose any joy at all because he will do justice. He's not just a God of love. And grace and mercy, he's also a God of justice. And so we will share his joy. We will not lose any joy in the eternal state. God's name will finally be vindicated. And in his justice, furious and vengeful though it may be, he will vindicate the name that has been mocked for millennia. In the kingdom, we will not question God's judgment we will not question God's justice. And instead, we will marvel at His grace. We will be constantly reminded of His grace. We will be reminded of why we worship. We will be reminded of the judgment that we were spared, that we deserved, and yet we will be in perfect joy. Our sense of righteousness, our sensitivity to sin will be that of God. I'm not saying we're going to be God. I'm not proffering any sort of blasphemy like that. I'm saying we'll be, we will be in such fellowship with Him that we will have this, the same joy. We will share His joy and we will also be oriented to His sense of justice and we will marvel at His mercy forever. We will appreciate the judgment that we, were, that we were spared, and yet we deserved. And that appreciation we will have forever and ever. They will be an abhorrence to all mankind, is the last phrase of the book of Isaiah. It's a warning. It's a warning. In this book, the prophet has revealed many, many things. 
He's revealed incredible things about Messiah as both God and man, as the servant of Yahweh. In this book, the prophet has revealed rich revelations about Messiah, how he would be pierced through for our transgressions, how the Father would be pleased to crush him for our sins, and how, his by, and how by his stripes we would be healed. The prophet has revealed joyous promises of God's blessings for those who tremble at his word, to use the language from the beginning of the chapter. He has also revealed sobering warnings of God's judgment for those who rebel against God. He revealed amazing assurances of God's coming kingdom, both physical blessings and spiritual blessings, physical joy and spiritual joy for the Jew and the Gentile. So it is no wonder why this book is often called the fifth gospel. The New Testament quotes and alludes to the book of Isaiah more often than any other of the Old Testament prophets, not even close in terms of the number of references that the New Testament makes to to this book in comparison to the other Old Testament prophets. And the New Testament quotes the book of Isaiah more than any other book in the Bible other than the book of Psalms. It's a very important book, so it is only fitting that the book of Isaiah ends with a grave, grave warning in verse 24. A warning to the rebels who have transgressed. That's the word in verse 24. The word there in Hebrew has the idea of rebel. It's those who have rebelled against God. It's a warning that the prophet gives that there is a reckoning coming, so submit to God to avoid his eternal wrath because the wrath is coming. There's a sad, sad reality among Christians, perhaps among some of us in this room today, that we are timid, that we are timid, that we kind of tiptoe and pussyfoot around the issue of, well, do I, do I tell them about Jesus? What are they going to think? We're timid. If you have ever loved, if you care in the slightest, for your family members or your friends who are unbelievers, you will give them the gospel. You will warn them of the wrath that is to come. You will warn them of the vengeance of God that is their destiny if you care for them in the slightest. I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as fallen, broken sinners in awe of your mercy and your grace. We fear you because you are an awesome God. We praise you. We love you. We come to you in respect and wonder for the great mercy that you have given us, though we are undeserving. We praise you that you have recorded your word thousands of years ago, that we might be edified by it, that we might be transformed by it. We praise you that you love us, that you sent your son, that you did not spare him. We praise you for all these things. And we pray this prayer in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.